0: Welcome everybody, uh, I'm sitting here with Jeff Hopkins, the principal of the Pacific School of Innovation and Inquiry. This is episode two of our podcast slash videocast. We are calling it School of Thought. Um, I'm Alex Van Tal and I have known and worked loosely with Jeff for a couple of years and um, am really quite curious about this model of education um that Jeff has in operation at the Pacific School of Innovation and Inquiry and so together we decided that a good way of sharing information about this model um, would be just to sit down and and talk and answer questions and ask each other things and just sort of really have a conversation so um, people can learn a little bit more. So hi Jeff how how is school going so far it's September what is it 17?
1: Yeah, hi, it's, uh, it's great. Um, it's actually going really well. It's been an unusual year for lots of reasons, and uh, uh, most people know what, the, what those reasons are, but uh, it's going really well. Uh, lots of adjustments. We can't do everything the way we would design it if we were allowed to be close to people or gather groups together uh, or anything like that, but we figured out a lot of ways of getting around that, so it's going pretty well, actually.
0: Good, and you, you have a pretty... Um, I won't say small student body because your your cohort is uh i mean i think you've got 90 some odd learners this year how many do you have yeah
1: 96. yeah
0: Yeah. and so um but sai your school was was fortunate in being able to have enough space to actually spread all the learners out and accommodate for them which i don't think is the case everywhere
1: no no we were lucky we we did take over some new space um not in anticipation of this but we we just were already going to do that, so thankfully. Unfortunately, we've lost some spaces that we used to use for, um, you know, breakout groups that we just can't use them anymore because we have people sitting there. So we have to be a little bit more creative about how we do gather people together, and we almost never can now, which is really yeah. unfortunate. So we have to do it electronically, and we actually we actually um, have a little rental of some space outside of the school that's a that's you know helpful, but you know, not ideal, but even that's kind of interesting because it gets us out in the community and we're looking at, you know, our neighbor and there's this place like two blocks away that's fantastic and no one even knew it was there before. So, not so bad.
0: There's some silver linings to all of this, yeah. Definitely,
1: definitely. Okay,
0: so today we are, um, the way Jeff and I figured um, we would dive into this material is to sort of break it into sections uh, almost like chapters in a, in a book, if you will. Um, and, and we actually used a model that was developed by um, an organizational consultant named David Baker, who uh, I think he works out of the United States. However, it could be, he could be in Australasia. Um, but David Baker has this great way of um, structuring, sort of helping people figure out what they do and uh, it's a model for thought leadership. And essentially it's what is the one thing that you do and then supporting that, what are the 20 things that you strongly believe that support uh, your number one conviction? So with with Jeff and with the Pacific School of Innovation and Inquiry, um, we know that the the number one thing is inquiry-based learning and allowing learners to create their own path and having teachers walk beside them, but what were the 20 things that you really believed um, as you were establishing the school? So those are the 20 convictions. Um, This model we just loosely refer to as the one twenty fifty, and supporting the 20 or 50 more minor convictions and actions that you would take. We won't be getting to the 50, at least not today, but we're gonna start with your first of your 20 convictions. And Jeff, let me ask, before I read these, are, did you form these in any
1: order? I was just gonna say, no no particular order. It was just, um, as they came to me, um, it was actually really interesting using this model, um, David Baker's model. It probably took me about a half an hour to do this. It was just really fast and I was actually shocked. <laughs> um, and it all it also kind of wrapped up right around 20. Um, I think I got to like 22 and then combined a couple of things and that was it. So. No, no no real order, just the order they came to me one day, that's it.
0: That's great. And so that tells you, right? I mean, that's a model that works. If it, Obviously, he's run this with lots of different groups before, and 20 seems to be that sweet spot. So, mm-hmm. uh, And I, I remember you saying that they just kind of blink, fell, fell straight down onto paper. So good that's to amazing. know that they're not really in order. Um, however, when we hit on a really, really important one, we'll for sure be talking about that. So I'm going to read you the first one here. This is the one we're going to talk about today. And the first conviction is, curriculum is more meaningful when it is emergent. So what do you mean when yeah. you say curriculum is more meaningful when it's emergent?
1: Well, um, and actually just to go back to what you asked before we started this, is this in any order? Um, it's not in any order and part of the reason for that is that all of these convictions are all elements in a ecosystem. Um, so if one of them isn't there, some of the other ones don't work. And so, uh, or they don't do what they're intended to do. So part of our model was to put these things together in one place instead of uh, picking and choosing from, you know, maybe your last professional development session where you try something um, by itself in a in another context. We we created a context with all of these things happening all at once because they all support each other. So so the reason I mentioned that is that, um, I think in order to answer the question about emergent learning, it's important to know there's a whole bunch of other things that have to happen as well, and we'll be talking about those in other other podcasts, uh, episodes, but um, there's a few things that are particularly valuable about it. One of them is that you actually, as a a school, you are building your learning around the learner. So instead of uh, deciding what everything is going to be before they get there, um, and then Trying to modify and adapt and adjust to the people who actually come through the door, uh, we just build it around the people who come through the door. Um, they they are the students. They are the learners. They're the people who we who need to learn here. So why not? <laughs> um, so part of part of it is about personalization. Part of it is is really waiting to see who we got and then uh, see what emerges from those people. What's strange about it as a teacher is that we're taught, all of us were taught, I know you were too, to um, plan, plan, plan like crazy. So unit plans and day plans and lesson plans and all of this kind of stuff. We don't do that anymore in the same way. We have to wait uh, just for a little while until some things emerge. And then we begin to plan just to be just slightly ahead of that. Um, but we, it's sort of a, a push and pull kind of a thing.
0: Cool. So a couple of questions on that. Um, One is, so you are not, you're not handing over a block of here are the things, here are the outcomes that you need to learn and here are the ways you're going to learn them. So you are allowing, uh, allowing curriculum, allowing the path of learning to emerge from the learner. Is that right?
1: Yeah, and I, and I guess, uh, again, because we're operating in a, in a formal education system in British Columbia, there are outcomes and there are courses. So mm-hmm. in the back of our minds as teachers, we know what those are, we know what those things are that the government says thou shalt teach, um, and we do. Um, but rather than saying it's Tuesday, November the 6th, so we're gonna teach um, evolution today, um, emergent learning tells us that we're gonna wait until a person is ready for that thing within their line of inquiry, and then we're gonna we're going to make sure they learn it. And what's powerful about that is not only did it come from them in the, that emergent way where it came from the learner, but also they're ready. So even if it is something that's already in the curriculum, if we wait until they want to learn it because it's important to them, they're quite motivated to learn it um, and pretty excited about it, actually. Um, they are also asking questions that, the learning a place to land in their brain as opposed to sort of a uh, a top-down dumping of information and you know they're hoping that they're going to be able to find a place to put that information that it has so much more meaning because it actually came from their own questions
0: yeah and as when i was teaching that was one of the most difficult things was sort of knowing that i was teaching um material that not all the children were interested in or not not all of them were ready to actually uh, onboard that information. So this model, the inquiry uh, based learning model is the personalized inquiry model is um, where you are allowing learners to have flexibility and fluidity for when they choose to come to that. And, and tell me how your age groupings support that, like this is grades nine, 10, 11, and 12. So tell me how how that all works together.
1: Well, it's interesting because um, grade, you know, there's a big difference between what someone is like when they're typically in grade nine and when they're in grade, grade 12, just developmentally and everything. So quite often people will come in and they, they may for, because they've never, most people have never done inquiry before until they come to the school. Mm-hmm. So we teach them to ask powerful questions to start to build a foundation for their lines of inquiry people don't know what they don't know. So some of the questions they have are very, you know, one track, maybe, you know, like one very very specific focus. And sometimes people will look at that focus and just say, how on earth are they gonna graduate? Like, they're not gonna know enough you know, broadly enough to really be all that useful in the world, maybe, Um, you know, how are we gonna do this? So luckily they're not all by themselves. And so they're seeing other things people are doing and it rubs off. Um, when someone else is ready to learn something, they might talk about it. And what we do is we have what we call topic sessions. And so someone will say, um, I really want to know a lot about the difference between social learning theory and and behaviorism, for example. And um, we'll put that out on our calendar, which is the Google calendar. You can look at it anytime you want. Actually, just look at our school website and there's our calendar. Um, And other learners will see that and go, oh, I never even thought about that before, but it's it emerged for you and now it's emerging for me. I'm I'm gonna go and see that. So that's one thing that happens in this in this high school context. The other one is that um, kind of the same way I mentioned the teachers have the, the formal curriculum in their head in the in the background. Um, we also have a kind of a developmental trajectory in our head for each learner. So if somebody's really, really focused on one area and let's say they're really avoiding something else that we know at some point, they're gonna need to get there. Wait, (laughs) wait. For some people it's math. For some people it's just the opposite and it's English or you never know. Um, But yeah, you never know what it'll be actually. It's pretty interesting. But we, rather than say, I'm sorry, it's Tuesday, it's block C, it's math time. We, we don't do that, we just we wait and um, we look for opportunities to um, introduce someone to math in a, in, through a context that they've, they're already interested in, or they show a readiness or a skill that is related to a skill that we know they're gonna need to acquire, let's say in math, and so we pounce on that opportunity. Um, we call it nudging, and uh, as teachers, because we sort of build this very trust-based, personalized system, when we do nudge somebody, they respond because we give them so much autonomy and they know that when we do that, there must be a good reason for it.
0: So that's great that you are just talking about that trust-based, personalized system, because I, I want to have you expand a little bit uh, around that, and um, One of the things when I think back to when I was teaching, and I taught grades five and six primarily, but I did teach high school and I did teach uh, younger children. One of the most difficult things was differentiated instruction. So uh, our our listeners will know, but if there's parents listening, differentiated instruction is where you have your um, unit plan, you have your series of lesson plans, and you know that you've got some learners with some uh, differences or some people don't have strong literacy skills or whatever the case may be. So you adapt those um, modules, you adapt those lessons for those learners. That was so hard because I was running two, three, four, four, Five programs and actually i never did it very well i just didn't
1: um, nobody nobody does it's really yeah. difficult it's almost impossible actually
0: yeah okay well good thank you for lifting that off my soul
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah but you can feel better
0: <laughs> i can feel better but um so in in the personalized inquiry model you're shifting that and you're really creating um freedom and flexibility for the learner you've got teachers who are watching carefully right they're shepherding these young learners Um, is that is that hard on teachers is that onerous for teachers like all of a sudden they're not teaching one program they're teaching 12 walk me through that
1: yeah i think i mean at first i think it's very difficult because as i said we've been taught to teach in a very different way where we are supposed to be a mile down the road in front of the learner um So in between what you talked about differentiation and personalization, which is what we do, there's a thing called universal design. And some teachers, because they're kind of afraid of that personalization, (laughs) because it sounds too hard, because they have differentiation in their mind and they know how hard that is, universal design is where you try to guess a way that you could uh, build something that's almost pre-adapted for all of the possible audiences before you even do it. I find that also really difficult. Um, the, the the model sort of comes from the idea that if you had um, stairs into a building and a ramp into a building, and somebody um, and it snowed and you had to shovel something so everybody could get in the school, you should shovel the ramp before the stairs because everybody can use a ramp, including people who need a wheelchair perhaps or something like that. But if you shovel the stairs first, only certain people can can come into the building. So universal design for learning is like thinking about ramps versus stairs, basically. Um, I find that also a great metaphor, but in reality, I don't think it's particularly useful, especially in high school actually, where you're trying to take people to pretty specific places um, and they also have very specific needs and there's a lot more courses. Um, so, so for teachers, as, soon as, as long as you're able to give up the idea that you need to be a mile ahead of everybody, And you are willing to take a step back and just breathe and know that your learners are going to tell you what they need. And you're gonna help them tell you. Part of teaching in this system is giving people a language and the tools to tell you what they need when they need it um, through their questions. Um, And they do, Um, and then it's really easy. And so you're not really doing anything that's harder than, in fact, I think it's a lot easier than any other school because everything you do is absolutely tailored to the student. You're not wasting any time. You're not doing anything where you're guessing, is, are they ready for this? We know they are. Um, so um, we spend a lot of time just uh, rather than, you know, maybe marking a hundred of the same paper, you're marking like a hundred different papers. <laughs> that's, the only, that's the only difference. Um, but the learners are saying, here's the, here was my goal in this learning. And so your criteria is coming directly from the learner. Um, things like that so it's not really any harder it's just a, a very different um, you're in a different place as a learner your relationship you're as a teacher and your relationship is different with the learner
0: okay so <laughs> this, is, this is cool it, it seems to sort of echo what i find is is happening in the corporate space or in the organizational space because the rate of learning Uh, and knowledge acquisition is increasing. It's really difficult for any leader, teacher, chief executive officer, uh, to be out in front, like you said, a mile out in front of their team or their tribe that they're leading. And so it's okay, you know, we kind of have to have a mindset shift among educators, which sometimes are the, we're the hardest people to shift mindsets, but if we can make that shift, to i don't have to be a subject matter expert
1: Mm -hmm. yeah that's true and this is where that mentorship versus coaching kind of thing comes in where you know we're mentors in some ways because you know we're older people and we might mentor people in i don't know uh how to be a human being in the world sort of stuff but Mm -hmm. coaching more in areas where we may not be experts and even when we are experts rather than just telling people things it's nice to Coach them into a place where they can acquire that knowledge on their own, with you know, with your support along the way. So, if our focus is h- how do you create a good learning process for somebody, and support that process with good scaffolding, we don't even need to know anything about the subject matter. And what's nice about that is, as you put it in the in the sort of the corporate world, because it's impossible to stay on top of everything as a single person. So you just could never do it. Um, in the school, if you limit what your learners are allowed to access because you're only you're going to cap it wherever your expertise ends, you are you are doing a massive disservice to kids um, because they will go way beyond where you are all the time, every day. So your ego takes a, a bit of a kick. So um, that's one thing that probably is harder uh, until you can get rid of that. Um, um, it almost this almost starts to become philosophical, but you have to put your ego away. Mm -hmm. and your job is to help people learn things your job is not to know the things that people are trying to learn
0: awesome Ah! awesome so okay um thank you for addressing that ego piece because i was just about to seize on that word and say you know it's excellent like the work is all around us and it's available to us to do at any time right stepping back from what we think we need to hold on to about what we understand about ourselves and just actually allow um things to take place and people to expand into their best selves and so this is a very different paradigm of teaching
1: completely different, to, yeah.
0: completely different i want to ask uh and this is we're we're winding down we don't want to go too long but i want to ask what is the benefit to learners of this kind of approach you see it all the time you're in your eighth year what what is the gift that this gives
1: well, a few things. One is, it gives people a great sense that um, they have some worth. Um, I know that sounds like a very big way to say that, but I think a lot of a lot of kids in schools feel like they're just, um, you know, going through the motions, and uh, they don't know anything, and they're just, you know, passive recipients of knowledge, um, and that that can become a little bit. Um, it can take your confidence away. It can make you feel like um, you will never be. You know, as smart as that person who's standing at the front of the room who seems to know everything, um, but they they really are capable of so much. And so when they become perhaps they're explaining something to the teacher because they need to explain it to you so that you can help them learn more, um, they feel good. Uh, their confidence level goes up. They are the expert in the room so often, and so um, there's just a, you know a very very good um feeling uh for somebody when they feel like they actually have a handle on something that maybe they're the only one in the building that has a handle on that um a lot of our learners also end up offering sessions to other learners um, which is also unusual in schools um, because they are the resident expert so um you know so there's the just the personal good feeling um there's Fabulous resumes. <laughs> so people tend to get, you know, scholarships and they get into, they get jobs really easily and all that because they really know what they're doing. Um, they're not passive recipients. Um, and then they also remember things better because um, they wanted to learn it. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't something that they were desperately sort of trying to find a little spot in the brain to park it. Um, they made the spot already because they were, they. that's why they want to learn it. They have the spot empty, ready to go. Um, so um, the advantages are like m- much better retention of, of detailed information. Um, uh, I also think there's something to be said for it, um, in, in terms of, um, interconnectedness. Um, this is something we'll talk about another time too, but, um, because they're coming to this through who knows what line of questioning, quite often they'll stumble across things that connect to, um, something in another discipline or, um, something that somebody else is doing or just another way of thinking some of something, an, a, an analogy or a metaphor. So quite often the, the learning is deepened because the learner's making meaning of it in lo- in ways that a teacher may not have ever thought of uh, to make a connection.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So two observations there tagged onto what you were talking about. One is when you were talking about um, that learners will remember better when they are coming to to material on their own, that uh, you and I both have a a term of reference for that from our psychology studies. That's that's, uh, intrinsic motivation, right? We all do, all of us, adults, children, whatever, we do better. Uh, We enjoy things more. We engage more deeply when we have that intrinsic motivation, right? It's us who wants to go in. It's not, an employer or a parent or a teacher telling us that we have to do something
1: absolutely uh, that's so true and so many times schools spend time thinking how can i convert this extrinsic motivation into intrinsic and it's yeah. really hard to do because it's kind of artificial but if it really is intrinsic it's really easy yeah um,
0: Yeah, i mean there's the odd teacher out there who can get a whole team of 25 youngins whipped up into a frenzy about um bridge to terabithia right or something specific but that is tricky you know it's it's uh yes. i think more rewarding to to allow this to happen on an individual basis which is exactly what you're doing
1: it's and true. No, you kind of reminded me though too uh, as much as we are on an individual basis we do try to bring groups of people together uh to share you know to to talk about it with each other and we also do things uh where the teacher might say hey let's do a you know, a reading club and we might do uh you know the equivalent of a bridge to Turbithia kind of a thing where we suggest something and People become interested in it, and that so that's still okay. So if a teacher listening to this, going, "Oh, what about my favorite things?" It's like you can still do some of your favorite things. It's okay. You just you're looking for a, an opportunity to do it, and you're doing it in a little bit more of a respectful way, actually.
0: Right. Yeah. Choice based. Well, yeah. and this this is. I'll just I'll just uh, give an anecdote before we wrap up. My my sixteen year old son a- attends uh, the Pacific School of Innovation and Inquiry. He's in grade eleven technically, although, you know, it doesn't always look exactly like grade 11. Uh, Sometimes it looks like grade 12. Sometimes it looks like grade nine. It's all over the place, but it's so rich. He was talking a couple of days ago about, you know, he was just sort of recapping his day and he said, oh, I'm going to join robotics. And like, I'm washing dishes at the sink." Hey, And I, I'm like, I'm not going to burst out into song or dance. I'm not going to drop the dish, but what the heck? Robotics. And he said, Yeah, you know, I was standing, I was uh, fixing my slingshot in the maker space while uh, Anton was talking about robotics. And there was a group going on behind me. And he said, I was sitting there, you know, fiddling around with the slingshots and making repairs and listening. And he was like, that was some pretty cool stuff. And so he has joined robotics because of that sort of being in the proximity of people who were already ready to engage with this learning. And now he's like, gee, this looks like this could be valuable, there's fun people here, I'm down.
1: That's great, yeah, that, that rubbing off is is pretty big. Um, and it's almost counterintuitive because you, it, sometimes people look at personalization and they think it means you know individualization or compartmentalization, but it's not at all. There's so much rubbing off and so much um, support for each other that, um, it, In in fact, in some ways, because there's no competition, because no two people are really doing exactly the same thing, um, there is absolutely no harm in helping somebody or joining someone and collaborating with them. You're not putting yourself at a disadvantage. Um, you, You can really, you know, you can dig right in and enjoy yourself and help people.
0: That's an awesome point. Um, I'm about to write an article for our local business magazine on exactly that, how we have this competition model that has structured our economy and look where it's brought us. Mm-hmm. Um, however, you know now we are looking around and we're seeing that collaborative models, not based in competition, not based in one-upmanship, not based in there's scarcity and I get this and if I get this, you don't get enough. You know, like collaboration is a much more reasonable and rational way forward, especially with the times we're living in now.
1: Absolutely, and it's why humans are where we are. I think that's we've evolved to be collaborative, and sometimes we forget that. But that's our advantage. That's actually what—that's our advantage. Yeah.
0: Very cool collaborating with you, Mr. Hopkins. Thank you. Too, and likewise. We'll sit down again, and uh, we'll do another one of the convictions very soon.
1: Sounds good. Take Take time. Time. Talk to them Talk to them